Section 23 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner, translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 6, Part 3. On Boxing Day, the whole family gathered together again at dinner at my father's. There were no strangers except the right honorable, to be sure, and Dr. Bresser. As we were sitting at table in the familiar dining room, I could not help having a lively remembrance of that evening when we two first plainly recognized our love. Dr. Bresser had the same thought. Have you forgotten the game of piquet which I was playing with your father while you chatted over the fire with Baron Tilling? He asked me. I seemed, it is true, quite absorbed in my play, but nevertheless I had my ear cocked in your direction and heard from the sound of the voices, for I could not catch the words, something which awoke in me the conviction, those two will come together. And now that I observe you together, a new conviction arises in me. Those two are and will remain happy together. I admire your penetration, doctor. Yes, we are happy. Shall we remain so? That unfortunately depends not on ourselves, but on fate. Over every happiness there hangs a danger, and the more heartfelt is the former, so much the more terrible the latter. What have you to fear? death. Ah, yes, that did not occur to me. As a physician, it is true, I have frequent opportunities of meeting the gentleman, but I do not think of him. And indeed, for young and healthy people, like the happy pair we are speaking of, he lies so far in the distance. What is a soldier better for youth and health? Chase away such ideas, dear Baroness. There is really no war in prospect. Is it not true, Your Excellency, he said, turning to the minister, that at present the dark point so often spoken of is not visible? Point is far too little to say, he replied. It is rather a black, heavy cloud. I trembled to my heart's core. What? I cried out sharply. What do you mean? Denmark is going altogether too far. Oh, Denmark? I said, much relieved. Then the cloud is not threatening us. It is indeed to me a sad thing, under any circumstances, to hear that there is to be fighting anywhere. But if it is to be the Danes and not the Austrians, I feel pity indeed, but no fear. Well, you have no need for fear either, my father broke in hastily, even if Austria were to protect her own interests. If we have to defend the rights of Schleswig-Holstein against the supremacy of Denmark, we're not risking anything in doing so. There is no question of any Austrian territory, the loss of which might be involved in an unsuccessful campaign. Do you think then, father, that if our troops should have to march out, I should be thinking of such things as Austrian territory, Schleswig-Holstein's rights, or Danish supremacy? I should see one thing only, the danger of our dear ones, and that would remain just as great whether the war were waged for one cause or another. My dear child, the fate of individuals does not come into consideration in cases where the events of the world's history are being decided. If a war breaks out, the question whether one or another will fall in it or not is silenced in the presence of the one mighty question whether one's own country will gain or lose in it. And as I said, if we fight with the Danes, we have nothing to lose in the war, and may improve our power and position in the German Bund. I am always dreaming that the Habsburgs may yet one day get back the dignity of German Emperor, which is their birthright. It would indeed be only proper. We are the most considerable state in the Bund. The hedge money is secured to us, but that is not enough. I should welcome the war with Denmark as a very happy event, not only to wipe out the stain of 59, 
but also so to improve our position in the German Bund that we should get a rich compensation for the loss of Lombardy, and, who knows, gain in power to such an extent that the reconquest of that province will be an easy task. I looked across to Frederick. He had taken no part in the conversation, but had engaged in a lively laughing prattle with Lily. A stab of pain shot through my soul, a pain which united into one twenty different fancies. War, and he, my all, would have to go, would be crippled, shot dead, the child in my bosom, whose coming he had greeted with such joy yesterday, would be born into the world an orphan, all destroyed, all destroyed, our happiness, yet scarcely full-blown, but bearing the promise of such rich fruit. This danger in the one scale, and in the other, Austria's consideration in the German Bund, the liberation of Schleswig holstein fresh laurels in the army's crown of glory, i.e., a lot of phrases for school themes and army proclamations, and even that only dubious, for defeat is always just as possible as victory. And this supposed benefit to the country is to be set against not one individual suffering, mine, but thousands and thousands of individuals in our own and in the enemy's country must be exposed to the same pain as was now quivering through me. Oh, could this not be prevented? Could it not be warded off? If all were to unite all learned, good, and just men to avert the threatened evil. But tell me, I said aloud, turning to the minister, are affairs really in so bad a condition? You ministers and diplomatists, have you no means of hindering this conflict? Do you know of no way of preventing it from breaking out? Do you think then, Baroness, that it is our office to maintain perpetual peace? That would, to be sure, be a grand mission, only not practicable. We exist only to watch over the interests of our respective states and dynasties, to work against anything that may threaten the diminution of their power, and strive to conquer for them every supremacy possible. Jealousy to guard the honor of the country, to avenge any insult cast on it. In short, I interrupted, to act on the principle of war, to do the enemy, i.e., every other state, all the harm possible, and if a dispute begins, to persist as long as possible in asserting that you are in the right, even if you see you are in the wrong, eh? To be sure, till the patience of the two disputants gives way, and they have to begin hacking away at each other. It is horrible. But that is the only way out. How else can a dispute between nations be decided? How then are trials between civilized individuals decided? By the tribunals, but nations have no such over them. No more have savages, said Dr. Bresser, coming to my help. Ergo, nations in their intercourse with each other are still uncivilized, and it will take a good long time yet before we come to the point of establishing an international tribunal of arbitration. We shall never get to that, said my father. There are things which can only be fought out and cannot be settled by law. Even if one chose to try to establish such an arbitration court, the stronger governments would as little submit to it as two men of honor, one of whom has been assaulted, would carry their difference into a court of law. They simply send their seconds and fight to set themselves right. But the duel is a barbarous, uncivilized custom. You won't alter it, doctor. Still, your excellency, I would not defend it. What say you then, Frederick, said my father, turning to his son-in-law? Is your opinion that a man who has received a slap on the face should take the matter before a court of law and get five florins damages? I should not do so. You would challenge the man who insulted you? Of course. Aha, doctor, aha, Martha, said my father in triumph. Do you hear? Even Tilling, who is no friend of war, submits to and is a friend of dueling. A friend? I have never said so. 
I only said that in a given case, I would, as a matter of course, have recourse to the duel, as indeed I have actually done once or twice, just as, equally as a matter of course, I have several times taken part in a war, and will do so again on the next occasion. I guide myself by the rules of honor, but I by no means imply thereby that those rules, as they now exist among us, correspond to my own moral ideal. By degrees, as this ideal gains the sovereignty, the conception of honor will also experience a change. Some day, an insult one may have experienced, and which is unprovoked, will redoubt as a disgrace, not on the receiver, but on the savage inflictor. And when this is the case, self-revenge in matters of honor also will fall as much out of use as in civilized society, it has become practically out of the question to write oneself in other matters. Till that time comes, well, we shall have some time to wait for that, my father broke in, as long as there are persons of quality anywhere. But that, too, may not perhaps be forever, hinted the doctor. Halloa, you would not get rid of rank, Mr. Radical, cried my father. Well, I would, a feudal rank. The future has no need for nobility. So much the more need for noble men, said Frederick in confirmation. And this new race will put up with their slaps on the face? First of all, they will give none. And will not defend themselves if a neighboring state makes a hostile attack on them? There will be no attacks from neighboring states, no more than our country seats now are besieged by neighboring citizens, as the nobleman no longer needs armed squires to defend his castle. So the state of the future will dispense with its armed hosts? What will become, then, of you, lieutenant colonels? What has become of the squires? And so the old dispute began again, and was prolonged for some time longer. I hung with delight on Frederick's lips. It did me more good than I can say to see the cause of noble humanity so firmly and so confidently defended, and in spirit I applied to himself the name he had just used, nobleman. End of section 23